Well, it's always, always a great joy to be here at Lakeside. Uh, we love you all. We love you for the, for the fact that you love our family well, our kids. Uh, we don't know why you're especially blessed and chosen to have our grandkids around. We envy you for that. Um, but we thank you for the way you care for them. And, uh, of course, appreciate Ken and Billy. And um, it's just an honor to be here in their absence. And uh, I'm grateful for my church for the freedom to be away today. And uh, look forward to what God does uh, in our midst. So let's bow our heads and uh, ask him once more just to quiet our hearts and to direct our thinking. Father, we've prayed already uh, that you be glorified, and we ask that with every fiber of our being, that we would humble ourselves under the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. Uh, we thank you that we can pray that in faith, believing that you will hear and you will answer according to your perfect will. So do your work today in all of our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. In all of our hearts. Can't look in your heart. I don't know what burdens you carried through the door today. Maybe some of you are carefree and blessed. You are here and you are just praising God for his goodness. And that's a wonderful place to be in, isn't it? It's great when everything seems to be hitting on all cylinders and life is in order and God is good and we're excited about what he's doing, and we can see his hand, and we are grateful for his hand. But we recognize that life is not always that way. Sometimes it's not that way because we've made foolish and sinful choices. Sometimes it's not that way because others have sinned against us. Sometimes it's not that way because we just live in a broken world that is still under the curse, and bad things are going to happen. And so people choose all kinds of different ways to cope with that, to deal with that, to, to deal with their sense of loss, to deal with the trouble that comes into their life. They try to find a ground of hope. They try to find a way to live. I drove up this morning from Houston along that um, beautiful part of God's creation called I-45. <laughs> and I was thinking about this message, and I was thinking about, about the way people satisfy, attempt to satisfy, the way people deal with this, this disconnect in life and the heartache and the, and the sense of, of, of temporalness and the sense of, is this all there is? You can find it all on 45. There are all kinds of illicit and, and immoral places, and I don't need to talk about that because you know that they're there. But there are also an awful lot of just all moral. They're not right, they're not wrong. They are just things. You can, a new car, will meet your needs, you can buy a new car. There are plenty of cars to look at. If you want to shop, there are places to shop. If you want to build a brand new house, there are examples, model homes for that. If you want three pair of shoes for $25, there's a place for that. I'm thinking about stopping on the way back. <laughs> Everything in between. It's just an example. It's just an example of, of how People try to satisfy their hearts and satisfy and meet their needs. And yet for those of us that follow Jesus, for those of us who believe that our sins are forgiven, for those of us that believe that we are living not just merely in time, but we're living for eternity, we know that there's far more than that. We're reminded, for instance, in the Bible, in Romans 15, the Bible says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so today, for me and for you, whatever we're dealing with, whatever sense of loss there might be, 
we come this morning to God's Word to find a sense of encouragement. We find, come to God's Word to find the only ground of hope that will really always be there and we can always count on. So I don't know what is in your heart. I don't know what you're dealing with. But let's come together to God's Word. In our church this year, beginning in January, we began a project where we are preaching through and all reading through the Bible together. It's been a challenge for us because typically we're much like your church. We just take a text of Scripture and we grind our way through it. Just grind. and Like your church, we grind and grind and grind our way through it, right? And so we were in the middle of the book of Luke and we just stopped at the end of last year and went back to Genesis and we're going through the entire Bible to try to, from about a 30,000 foot level, to try to get the, we're calling it the big story. And it's been a challenge for us in a lot of ways. We have to read through the scripture every day and, and to try to preach big chunks, to try to, to really communicate it well. That's been a challenge in preaching, but it's also been richly encouraging and a blessing. And one of the things that I've found is that when you, when you take a step back and you're trying to keep in mind the big picture, it's amazing how God's Word lays that out in powerful ways. And so we're in the middle of the Old Testament right now, and a few months ago I preached the book of Esther and the book of Job, and it was astounding to me how both of those books that are very different, describe different time frames, describe in different genres, in different literature mode, uh, reveal God's will and God's Word, uh, describe different people in different circumstances, but really those two books are essentially saying very similar things to us as people of God. And so I want to take this morning and show you from the book of Job and also from the book of Esther, I want to show you what God would have us know from his word this morning. So open your Bibles there. Uh, we'll begin with Esther. Turn to the book of Esther and try to find this encouragement of the scriptures that we might have hope, as the Bible says in Romans chapter 15. So let me just give it to you straight out. Here's what Esther does. What the book of Esther does is Esther details the deliverance of God's people through God's hidden providences. I'll say it again. Esther details the deliverance of God's people through God's hidden providences. The issue at the time of Esther was the danger of the total elimination of God's people Israel. And all of the covenant promises that God had made in what we call the Old Testament times, all of those promises he had vested in a people, the Jews, the people of Israel. And so for those covenant promises to be borne out and for God to be true and faithful, the people of Israel had to be in existence and had to be protected and had to survive. And so what you have in the book of Esther, falling in the time frame after the exile, just as some of the Jews were beginning to return back to the homeland, it had been a devastating time for them as a nation, but they had survived as a people. Even in exile in Babylon, they had managed, as a remnant, they had managed to stay together and maintain their identity as a nation. But now, historically, what happens in Esther is there is a threat against the people of God. And they are vulnerable. At this time, they were a vulnerable nation. They had no army. They had no king. They had no prophets. They had no temple. They had no priesthood. They were, they were offering no sacrifices. They were exposed and they were now attacked. And in the land of Persia, far away from the homeland, where many of them dwelt and where really the core of the nation still was, there was a threat that would wipe out every Jew, both in Persia and even all the way to what we call the Holy Land, what we call today Israel. All the Jews would be wiped out. It was a dangerous time. 
But Esther is a kind of Cinderella story. Because I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the story, but what you have is you have a young Jewish girl guided by a cunning older relative. And she is apparently, through random circumstance, she is elevated to be the queen of Persia. Now think about that. She's likely an orphan. She's of an ethnic minority. And yet, through random circumstances, she becomes the queen of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at the time. At the same time that all of this is happening, a plot develops to destroy all the Jews in all of the empire. And that plot is uncovered. The plot is so serious, you and I would call it a prototype of the Holocaust. It was a designated, specific, time-dated, free, open season on killing Jews. That's exactly what the plot was. And the Jews were in danger. But this young girl, Esther, is in, a, is in a position to plead for deliverance for God's people. And the way God works it out, I'm just trying to give you the, the broadest relief of the story, is that through random circumstances, again, the, the evil heart of the plotter, the one who had, had designed this evil, this evil plan to destroy all the Jews, is revealed, and he ends up being hanged on the very gallows that he had built for Esther's relatives. And here's what's stunning about the story. Most of you are familiar with the story. You may have forgotten the specifics. But what's stunning about it is you go to the Bible and you read the story of Esther and God is not mentioned. His name's not there. You have no references to people praying to him. When the deliverance comes, there's not a praise service where they sing praises to Yahweh. The name of God is not mentioned. It's stunning. And... If you read carefully, and I think this is one of the difficulties we have sometimes reading the scriptures, because we always feel like we have to make the primary players heroes. But the actions of Mordecai and of Esther are not necessarily honorable all the way through. I mean, when Esther is brought into the king's harem and elevated to be the king's queen, there are sexual implications to that that are troubling to us. When Mordecai engages some of his resistance to Haman, he does so not necessarily on the ground of principle, but he does so because of petty offense. There is scheming and conniving that takes place. It's not necessarily the case that God delivers the people of Israel because Esther is so courageous. That's usually the way it's preached. Or because Mordecai, you know, was such a faithful servant of God. They may have been, but the Bible doesn't tell us any of that. And at times, likely, they fall short of pure integrity. Sometimes they fall short even in courage. And surely there's no record of open faith, of open confidence and trust and proclamation of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But beyond doubt, and by the way, this is the reason the book has been held and cherished by the Jews for centuries and also by the Christian church, because beyond doubt, God was at work behind the scenes. And again, remember what we're saying. What Esther shows us, is the deliverance of God's people through his hidden providences. Now, let me give you some examples of that. Turn with me, first of all, to Esther chapter 9. Look in Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9, we'll we'll pick it up in verse 20. And this is at the end of the story. I'm, I'm jumping all the way to the end. And I want to give you a sense of 
of the evidence that God was working, even though his name's not even mentioned. Now watch this carefully. In chapter 9, beginning verse 20, look at what the Bible says. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Azaharis, both near and far, obligating them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. Now, why were they to keep this feast? It's called the Feast of Purim. Why were they to do that? Look in verse 22. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies... And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. Now, let me just stop and ask you. Do you notice the verb and the verb tenses of that verse? Look at it again. Verse 22. These were the days on which the Jews got relief. My question to you is, how? From whom? Notice the next phrase. It says, as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness. How was it turned from sorrow into gladness? How is it, as it says in the next phrase, that it turned from mourning into a holiday? How did that happen? The book is not explicit, but the author believes somehow it came about, right? Let me give you another example. In the words of Esther, go to chapter 8. Look back in chapter 8. This is really the the crucial turning point of the book as far as the courage of Esther and her speaking out for the deliverance of the Jews. Look in verses 5 and 6. It says, Esther rose, we're in chapter 8, verse 5. Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Now, the astounding thing is this. Indeed, in verse 5, she did please the king. She did find favor in his sight. And the thing that she was asking did seem right in the eyes of the king. And God spared his people. There's no explicit reference to God, but this is how it just happened. It just happened this way. Go back earlier in the book, look in chapter 4, and this is the most familiar passage in the book. Nearly all of you have heard it before. Chapter 4, look in verse, beginning verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Esther's been made aware of the plot. She's fearful, and she says, essentially, I don't think I can do anything about this. And so look at the response in verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself... I'm in verse 13 now of chapter 4. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Now, how did he know that? Where was his confidence in that? He said, Esther, you have an opportunity here. Go on, notice. He says, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, Esther, you likely will be the one to provide deliverance. But if you don't, there will deliverance show up some other way. Now, what's the ground for that? The ground is Mordecai and ultimately Esther. And for sure, the author of this book, they knew that God was at work behind the scenes. They knew that the God of Israel, who had made these promises to the covenant nation, the promises that ultimately focused on the deliverance of the whole world, that God could not and would not allow the nation to be destroyed. 
And they knew, even in hidden providences, that God would deliver his people, that God was at work behind the scenes. And so even though it just happened that way, there's some confidence that stuff just doesn't happen, that someone is at work. Sadly, we sometimes talk about it this way. Well, luckily, it worked out. No, luck had nothing to do with it. I love the pastor Mark Dever, and I want, you, I want to read for you what he says about this text. It's a great list, and if you're not familiar with the story, this is the whole story. Let's think about this. It just happened? Esther just happens to be Jewish. She just happens to be beautiful. She just happens to be favored by the king. Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot against the king's life. A report of this just happens to be written in the king's chronicles. Haman just happens to notice that Mordecai does not kneel down before him, and he just happens to find out that Mordecai is a Jew. When Haman plots his revenge, the dice just happen to indicate that the date for exacting revenge is put off for almost a year. Remember what the Bible says in Proverbs? The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. It just happens this way, right? Esther happens to get the king's approval to speak. But then she happens to put off her request for another day. Her deferral just happens to send Haman out by Mordecai one more time, which just happens to cause him to recount it to his friends. They, in turn, just happen to encourage him to build a scaffold immediately. So Haman just happens to be excited to approach the king early the next morning. It just so happens that the previous night, the mighty king could not sleep a wink. And he just happened to have a book brought to him that recounted Mordecai's deed that had delivered him from a plot. Then the king just happened to ask Mordecai whether he'd been rewarded, to which his attendants happened to know the answer. Haman happens to approach the king just when the king is wondering how Mordecai should be honored. Later on, the king happens to return to the queen just when Haman happens to be pleading with Esther in a way that can be misconstrued as a sexual assault. And then finally, the gallows that Haman built for Mordecai just happens to be ready when King Ezeharis wants to hang Haman. All of that just happens. God was at work behind the scenes to deliver his people. Now, you may ask, what's this have to do with you and me? Have you ever wondered if God has forgotten you? Have you ever wondered if God is still working? If you ever wonder, have you ever wondered if God still has a purpose in the wasteland that is your life right now? Perhaps. How can we know that? Let me give you the application. Here it is. God is powerfully present even when he seems most strikingly absent. The book of Esther doesn't even mention God's name. But God is powerfully present even when he seems most strikingly absent. What does it take for you to be convinced that God is at work? What are you looking for? A miracle a day keeps the devil away? Are you looking for signs in the heavens? Are you waiting for voices in the dark? The promise of God's word is that he is with us. You, I, I love the story in, in Matthew. Matthew begins with the angel coming to Joseph, remember? And talking about the deliverer that will come and what will his name be? Call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God is with us. 
So then you have the story that Matthew accounts of Jesus' life, and then you have Jesus' death, his powerful resurrection. At the end of the book of Matthew, you have what we call the Great Commission, where Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And remember what he says to them there? He gives them the Great Commission, and then he says, and, and I will be with you, how long? Always. I will be with you to the end of the age. And the next thing Jesus does is he leaves them. You ever notice that? He leaves them. He says, I will be with you to the end of the age, and then he goes back to heaven. And make no mistake about it, you read Acts 1, they are very specific. They physically, with their eyes, Jesus didn't just disappear off the scene. They, they saw him physically ascend into heaven. And yet Jesus says, I will be with you. He is with us in his word. He is with us through his spirit. He is with us in the body of Christ, which is now the presence of Christ in the world. And you may not always see it. You, you may long to see some kind of evidence that God is at work, but by faith, because of what God had done for his people Israel, and now that same God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we as forgiven sinners brought into his family, we can know that if he cared that much for the people Israel, he also cares for us. He is with us in his all-encompassing sovereignty and providence. He is at work in your life. And sometimes his working will be painful to you, especially if you are disobedient and rebellious. Sometimes his working will be mysterious to you because you don't understand why something is happening. But nothing has ever happened to you that is outside the hidden providence of your God. This is the message we have from Esther. That God is powerfully present even when he seems most strikingly absent. Now, some people might say this. Yeah, okay, you've told me the story of Esther, and you've told me how God was working, even though he's not even referenced in the book. You told me how God's providence is at work, but that was specific for the people of Israel. It's for the nation. I get that. He was protecting his people, Israel, the nation. But what about individuals? What about God's working in individuals' lives? And if you're reading through the Old Testament, you get to the end of the book of Esther, and I think that's a legitimate question you're asking. This is what God did for Israel, but what about individuals? But then you know where you head as soon as you're reading through the Old Testament, you finish Esther, you know where you go next? The book of Job. And Job shows us God's working not in the life of a nation, but in the life of one man. Job details the suffering of God's servant for his hidden purposes. The suffering of God's servant for his hidden purposes. Esther details the deliverance of God's people through his hidden providences, but Job details the suffering of God's servant for his hidden purposes. So instead of the suffering of an entire nation, here's the suffering of one godly man. We don't know much about Job. Most scholars, conservative scholars, think that he lived during the patriarchal period, a contemporary likely of Abraham, maybe even earlier than Abraham, right after the Tower of Babel. He was wealthy, he was godly, and he was perplexed because he had gone through incredible loss and suffering, what one author calls sudden crushing loss. In fact, it's almost too painful to recount. Most of you have read the story. It's in chapter one. He loses everything. He loses everything he possessed. All of his economics are destroyed. He loses all of his family except for his wife. He loses all of his relationships and he loses his physical health. He is, he is diseased from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. It is not pleasant And the rest of the story, that's all in chapter 1, by the way. The rest of the book recounts his and others' responses to his suffering. 
And let's see how that goes. First of all, he has a wife. And the wife is no comfort at all, as we're going to see. And then he has three friends who come, and they want to grieve with him. And it's really interesting to me. A lot of, they get a lot of grief, but they come and they just sit with Job, and the Bible says they weep with him for three days. Think about that. They just sit and cry with him for three days. But then they start to talk, and that's when it all goes south. Because essentially they said, Job, the only conclusion we have is this. You've really done something wrong. You've really done something. This is all your fault, Job. Because God wouldn't do this to somebody if you hadn't done something wrong. A a younger counselor comes along later, and, and he doesn't quite get it right, but at least he tries to orient the discussion to God. And then finally, in the book of Job, God comes, and you know the answers that God gives? None. You're waiting for God to say, finally, God comes on the scene and says, this is the reason, Job, that you suffer. This is the reason, Job, that you have all of these problems. You wait for Job to hear some kind of explanation for God, and God gives none. You know what God says to him? Job, just trust me. Just trust me. And what's even more stunning about this? You know, what, what was really stunning about the book of Esther is that God's not even mentioned. But you come to the book of Job, and what's amazing about it, if you've never read it, you need to read it. Because what's amazing about it is, We know, Job doesn't know, but we know why all this has happened. God initiates it. God says to the evil one at the beginning, he says, by the way, have you ever noticed my servant Job? And remember the response of the evil one is, well, he just worships you and loves you because you give him everything, because you protect him. And God says, well, have at it. Let's see what happens. We know that Job suffers in order to demonstrate the grace of God in Job's life in that Job continues to worship God in spite of the stuff and in spite of the relationships and in spite of his health. We know it from the beginning. That's what's stunning about the book. The reply that God gives to Job in the midst of his pain is not ultimately very satisfying to us. We want Job to be let in on the secret. We want Job to know what we know, and he doesn't. God just says, trust me. And Job's response, have you, you've always heard people talk about the patience of Job. I want to tell you, if you read the book, Job isn't really very patient. There are a lot of times, no less than I, no less than me, I guess I should say, there are a lot of times when, when Job says, what is going on? He's impatient, but he's always persevering. I think he's impatient, but he's also persevering. Let me give you some examples Look in Job chapter 2. Turn there with me. This is that classic uh, text of spousal encouragement here. Job chapter 2. Look in verses 9 through 10. He's lost everything. I mean, he's lost everything. It's really crude. The the verse before in verse 8 says that he's basically taking taking shards of pottery and scraping his boils. This is what his life has ended up being. And so in verse 9, it says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Do you understand what she's saying there? She's saying God can't still be a good God. You're holding on to some integrity, but look at what has happened to you. And then she says, Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
When Blake was a little boy, we moved to California to go to seminary. And the church that we were serving had a wonderful couple in leadership there. The guy was just one of these guys that everyone loves being around. He was a successful businessman. He loved people well. He served people well. He contracted leukemia. And the prognosis was not good. And so he was at Loma Linda Teaching Hospital and in and out for treatment. And they wanted him to be interviewed by some of the residents in order to work through issues of grief. The chaplaincy department for the hospital thought he would be a good individual to talk to the residents about his suffering and his pain. So he called me up and he said, hey, I have to go down for this uh, interview. You want to go with me? I said, I'd love to go with you. So Bill and I went down. We were sitting in a little consulting room in the hospital there. There were about six, maybe seven uh, young residents there. And there was Bill and uh, lost all of his hair. And, um, and I was sitting next to him. And they asked him all kinds of questions about his treatment, his care, and, and you know what they could learn from him. And finally, one of them looks at him and says, Mr. Thornburg, don't you, don't you think this is really unfair that this has happened to you? And Bill, he had a great sense of humor and he kind of snorted kind of laughed. I look over at him and his, he doesn't know it, but his, his nose is bleeding. He's just ravaged by the disease and by the treatment. And he just snorts a little bit, laughs. He says, God has given us so many good things. Shall we not accept the bad? And I remember thinking, this is a holy place. This is what worship looks like. This is a willingness to say that for God's purposes, I'm willing to suffer. Things I don't understand, things I wish I could trade, but I'm willing to go through it. And this is what we have with Job. The suffering of God's servant for his hidden purposes. You know what I've imagined this week as I was thinking about sharing this message with you? I've imagined what it's going to be like in heaven. I, I, I know that we think about these things rooted a lot in our pride and we live in America and there's so much celebrity culture in America and in the evangelical church there's way too much celebrityism and I think all of us would agree with that. But here's what I, I still believe will happen. I think when we're in heaven every now and then we're going we're gonna to go, look, there's Job. How cool is that? There's Job. I mean, we'll remember all the suffering we went through and the loss we went through, and then we'll walk along and we'll see Job. And it's like, I got nothing. I got, there's Job. And don't misunderstand me. It's not to Job's credit. It's all to God's glory. It's all that God might be honored. It's, it's, it's God's grace that gave Job the ability to still praise him and not to sin with his lips. And so we'll pass Job and every now and then, I know heaven won't be like this, but just imagine if we, if we were tempted to think that we had it rough on earth, and then well, there's Job. Because God has his purposes that Job never saw, but he still trusted him. Here's your application for that. God is purposefully present. He is purposefully present. Present with purpose, with intention, with design, with plan. God is purposefully present even when he seems most painfully absent. Even when he seems most painfully absent. With Job, it had to be devastating. It had to be painful. 
And yet God had his purpose. God's call for us to trust him. And you think about it this way. We don't know how much Job already knew because we don't really know when he lived. But for Job, he had some confidence in Yahweh, some confidence that he was able to hear the message and trust his God. You go to Esther and Mordecai, and they had more information than Job, for they lived later. So they knew the story and the progress of redemption story of God's kindness to Israel. And they had a ground to trust him. But for you and me, we know far more than Esther and Mordecai knew. We know far more than Job knew. Because we recognize what God has done for us in Christ. We recognize the fullness of God's purpose and the fullness of God's working. And even in our deepest troubles, we come back to trust the God of heaven based on what he's done for us in the gospel. And that's the reason we can say with confidence today that God is powerfully present even when he seems most strikingly absent. And God is purposefully present even when he seems most painfully absent. God is at work in our lives. It's hard to imagine this, but it's true. There's a story of a Baptist pastor who took a missions trip years ago to the island of Tobago, and he was in a leper colony there, and in the service there was time for one more song, and so they asked if anyone had a request, and a woman who had been facing away from the pulpit turned around, and the pastor said it was the most hideous face I had ever seen. The woman's nose and ears were entirely gone, The disease had destroyed her lips as well. She lifted a fingerless hand in the air and asked, Can we sing, Count Your Many Blessings? Overcome with emotion, the pastor left the service. Followed by that, a team member asked him, Pastor, I guess you'll never be able to sing that song again. He said, Yes, I will, but I'll never sing it the same way. Count your many blessings. Do you have this view of your God? Do you have this view that whether you are in trouble because you brought it or you're in trouble because others have wronged you or you're in trouble and heartache because we live in a cursed world, do you have this confidence that your God is working through his powerful, omniscient, omnipotent providence to accomplish his purposes in your life? And I do believe we have a choice of whether to make that process easier or more difficult. In our disobedience, I think we only make it more difficult. Here's your takeaway today. Whether you're talking about this fact that God is silent, God is strikingly absent, or whether you're talking about your overwhelming pain and God seems painfully absent, your confidence, your confidence that God is working, you can be certain of it. And how can you be certain? Very quickly, you can be certain because of the cross. It's the cross. That's how you can be certain. The cross was the ongoing goal of God's protection for Israel. God was going to provide a redeemer in Jesus Christ. He was going to provide a redeemer who would die for the sins of the world. That's demonstrated in Esther's story. The covenant promises were jeopardized by Haman's plot, and yet God delivered them. And Job, though Job didn't understand the cross, though Job would not have been able to articulate it, Job still had this confidence 
Listen to what he says in chapter 19. I'll read it to you. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I'm going to physically die, he said, but I have confidence that I'll still in my flesh see God and that my Redeemer will stand. A confidence of God's deliverance. The cross is the ground of your hope. I'll close with this. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Some gospel theology to round out the message. Romans chapter 8. Look at it. After all of this theology in Romans of the gospel and what God has done for us in covering our sin, look at, look at what Paul says. He, he's beginning to wrap up this section of his letter. Pick it up in Romans 8. Look at verse 26. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We're all in weakness, aren't we? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Have you ever been there? I I, I don't know how to pray. I'm, I'm hurting so bad. Either I've disobeyed and wandered or others have wronged me so deeply or this broken world is afflicting me so desperately. I don't know what to pray. But look what he says. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What a great promise that is. That's what we're talking about. That God's purposes are at work for those who love Him. All things, good, bad. It's not that all things are good, but all things work together for good. And then there's this great theological grounding of who are those that are called according to His purpose. Those that were foreknown and predestined. Those are the ones that were called and those are the ones that were justified. Those are the ones that will be glorified. And so look in verse 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And you and I would stop and we would say, well, plenty could be against us. Disease could be against us. Betrayal could be against us. Immorality, sin can be against us. Brokenheartedness could be against us. Yes, that's true. But look at it. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see the ground of it? The ground of it is the cross. When you question whether God's goodness is still at work in your life, when you question God's providence, when you question why you're in the middle of heartache and loss, you go back to the cross. Remember Esther and Mordecai. Remember Job. But far more, remember the cross. Because Paul says in Romans 8 that this is the ground of our confidence that God will graciously give us all things. Everything we need. It's rooted in the fact that God has already given up His own Son for us. What love is that? That's the love he had for the people of Israel. That's the love he had for Job. That's the love he has for me and for you. You want to talk about me? You know my son. I wouldn't give him up. For people like you? I said that in the first service, and I'm afraid people thought I meant for people as lousy as Lakeside Bible Church. That's not my point, all right? I mean, for any sinners. If God gives me the choice and says, why don't you give Blake up for the sinners? I'm not going to do it. My grandson, my granddaughters. But this is the love of God. He took his son and delivered him over. It's a a technical word of, of offering. He delivered him over for us all. And if God has shown, here's the point, if God has shown already how much he loves us, we can trust him in our heartache.
We can trust him in our hurt. We can trust that even if he's strikingly absent, he is present with power. And even when he's painfully absent, he is present with purpose. We can trust him. So I don't know what you're trusting in today. I think there are a lot of people who follow Jesus and they still trust in maybe their own, maybe your righteousness. Like if you're good enough, bad things won't happen. No, Joe blows that out. Are, are you trusting in just your ability, your knowledge? Like if I study more, then bad things won't happen. Or if I'm busier, bad things won't happen. Maybe you've fallen into the, the rut of the world. If, I, if I'm successful, if I have a great reputation, if I have a lot of stuff, then it'll make my life meaningful and I can't be hurt anymore. No, it doesn't work that way. The old catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism says this. The first question. What is your only comfort in life and death? And here it is. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Where is your only comfort in life and death? We are not our own, but we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Could I pray for you? Father, speak to our hearts today. Lord, some of us are brokenhearted today. May this message, through your spirit, may it gladden our hearts and give us hope. Some of us are here today and we are blessed and full and confident and thankful. But we know that in a broken world, heartache will come. So prepare us for those days with a confidence The confidence that you are powerfully present even when it doesn't seem you are and that you are purposefully present even in our pain. Thank you for the promise that's proven and confirmed on the cross. May we be faithful to remember these things and may we be encouraged in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.